This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Steve Vickers in Christian Life Church in Montgomery, Alabama. For more information, visit ChristianLifeChurch.com. Well, we're talking about fixing us. We're dealing with marriage. This is our second part, part two of our series on marriage. And last week we talked about, uh, we asked the question, is there a chance for us? Is there a chance for us? And you know, every relationship, every relationship at some point in time comes to a place where the very things that attracted you, the very things that you loved about each other, liked about each other. And this can be with friends. It can be uh, uh, marriage or whatever. Whatever kind of relationship. Even on your job. You go to the job. Oh, this is the greatest job. But have you ever noticed how it doesn't take long before the same person says, boy, this is a great job. Later on, they're able to tell you every little thing that's wrong with the job. And it's almost like, I love my job. Two years later, they're saying, well, this guy and, and this company and this and that. And we, if we're not careful, we lose whatever is good because we're only focused on the microphone getting right. <laughs> uh, we're only, we've become focused on the negative. But <clears throat> every relationship deals with issues. And at some point in time, we'll wonder, well, is this really worth it? Is this going to make it, you know? Should I do this? Should I continue? And so we're answering questions. This week, we're going to deal with the root cause, the source of all marriage problems. And I hope that you are willing to listen very open with an open mind and an open heart. I really would like for you for just a moment, if you would, take your defenses. Uh, just let the, the gate or the bridge down across the moat that is built around the castle of your life to protect you from hurts, loss, disappointments, uh, correction, or whatever it may be, would you just for a moment let the bridge down? Let the drawbridge down. And let's open up and let me come in, if you will, for just a moment to come into your life, to the private part of your life, and speak very honestly to you. I'm going to deal with some things. Uh, This is not fairy tale marriage. This is dealing with real issues. And today we're going to deal with a tough one. We're going to deal with a tough one. Um, It's something every one of us have to deal with, no matter who we are. And it is the very core of every marriage problem, every relationship problem on planet Earth. This one thing. You know, and if we can... At the end of this service, if, if, or and during the service, if you're able to keep the drawbridge down and, and let your heart be open, I'm not going to attack you. I just want to 
speak some truth, some, and something for you to consider, just to consider even, and to put in to your heart in life and begin to think about. And if you and I, and I'm in this too, if you and I will confront this and we're willing to deal with it, not just in a moment, but from now on, we're, able, we're willing to deal with it, we will be well on our way to having healthy relationships. Whether it's the marriage you're in, or maybe you're getting ready to get married, or maybe you're dealing with past relationships. And for all of us, we are in somewhere in that mix. There's things that have happened in our past with other relationships. There's the relationship we have that there's some things that probably either have happened or happening or about to happen. And so we have to deal with all of that. But if we will deal with this one thing about us, then all of a sudden, it's like suddenly we ha- we're on channel where we see things a lot more clearly. I'm going to read one verse in the Bible. Now, in this series, I told you that what we're pulling from, the sources, I'm not going to go over that again. But we said that one of them is the Bible. And that the Bible is the true picture that God has. That God painted, the portrait God painted of marriage. So that we can look at that picture and say, that's what we should be like. All right, let's. It's, uh, uh, they'll put it up there, guys. And there it is, Ephesians 5, 21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Could we read that, that out loud together, if you would, for just a moment? You let the drawbridge down, so I have the, opportun- the ability, the freedom to ask you to do some things. So let's do it together, if you will. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why do we submit to one another? We don't submit because the other person's perfect. We don't submit because they've earned the right for us to submit to them. Uh, We don't submit to them because we feel like submitting. We, our submission to our mate, our submission to our, uh, the person we're in relationship with, Our willingness to submit to them is based solely on our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we said last week that he is the beginning point of our working our marriage out. All right? Submit. Paul begins his teaching on marriage here. And Ephesians 5 is where I'm really, these, all of these sessions for the next six weeks, this is our second, there's eight weeks. All of our sessions are really coming out of Ephesians 5. So Paul begins in verse 21 is really his beginning teaching on marriage there. When he opens up the, the teaching on marriage, his discourse, he begins with a very controversial term today. Uh, this is a term you should not use today. Uh, it's a term that it's old school, it's old hat, it's archaic. It's not popular today. But Paul didn't know that when he wrote the Bible or when he was writing this under direction of the Holy Spirit. 
But the Holy Spirit sure knew that the day would come when this would be a very touchy subject. The term submit to some people immediately throws up gender roles. Immediately women will think, oh, you're, oh, I guess, you know, I'm the one that's got to submit. Well, let's clarify this. Paul is very specific and then he says, submit to one another. It is something the man does as well as the woman. It is something that both must do. And really, you know, when we talk, we're talking about marriage, but guys, you can apply this in friendships. You can apply this in anything that deals with a relationship in life. There must be some mutual commitment there, a mutual submission to one another are there's going to be problems. What Paul talks about submission is the most difficult characteristic or, or act anyone can do. It is the most difficult thing that we as humans can do. Yet it is the most important single factor in any relationship. Did you hear what I said? It is the most difficult thing to do, yet it is the most important single factor in any relationship. Now, we, you know, so my son asked me, he said, Dad, you're going to deal with conflict relations and, and our, our conflict uh, resolution. And he started naming off some of these things. I said, absolutely, we'll deal with those things. But I said, son, there's some deeper issues, major issues that if we just teach you how to... Com- resolve conflicts and don't deal with the underlying problem then all you're going to do is have the skill set to to handle all the conflicts that you're going to live in continually because you never deal with the underlying issues and there comes a time that you say I'm tired of living in a war you know so we've got to deal with some root issues before we can get to the things that we always think are the most important things And these are not philosophical. These are very concrete. They're basic issues. I'm not teaching you fairy tale stuff or philosophical stuff. This is concrete things. What we taught last week, you can put into practice. And this week, you can put it into practice. And if we will begin to practice these things, it will change every relationship we have. I'm telling you the truth. Okay. The most critical function, you might want to write this down. The most critical function of both the husband and the wife is submission. It says there on the screen, notice what it says. Voluntary submission to one another is the most difficult yet the most important single factor in a good marriage. And it is the most critical function of both husband and wife. More important than the guy making a living. More important than the guy fixing things. More important than the guy being the man. Uh, being the head, more important than the wife uh, uh, in all of her roles. The most important function in a relationship, especially in husband and wife, is submission by both to one another. Now, Paul's picture of marriage, when Paul talks about marriage, you read it there in Ephesians 5. When Paul talks about it, uh, the people he describes are whole people. He really discusses two whole people robing themselves 
as servants to one another. Now, you know, if we saw a pic- show a picture of a husband and wife, we're usually going to see the guy in tux or in a cool-looking suit, and the girl's going to be in this beautiful dress. And that's well and good. My daughter just got married, Denise and Pierre. Mr. and Mrs. Dampier. <laughs> Uh, and she had on this beautiful gown, beautiful wedding dress, and, and, uh, and that was, that's as it should be. But in the sight of God, when the two of them stood there taking their vows, and as they walked away, God sees them, if they're sincere, he sees them robing themselves, not in this beautiful gown and tux, but in the robe of servant. Just as his son, the Bible says when Jesus came to earth, it said that even though he was equal with God, he did not, say, he did not uh, consider his equality with God as something that he should hold on to and say, but I'm equal with God, so I'm not going to become a servant. The Bible says he let that go and he took on himself. He put on the robe of a servant so that he might serve us so that he might serve and uh, win the church. And so what we do in marriage, what Paul talks about, he says that Paul's vision or image of marriage is two people standing there, not putting on their fatigues because they're about to go to war for the next 40, 50 years. Their combat, you know, you just try me, bud. You do me wrong, you're dead meat. You know, uh, you know, and uh, you know, God, he doesn't see them as that. He doesn't see them as in separate, you know, the man's the haughty one and the whatever. Paul sees them as two people. Yes, they're whole, they're not insecure, void people that have all these insecurities and voids and emptiness in their lives. He sees them as two whole people. Because it takes a whole person, a real person, a real man, a real woman to be willing to submit themselves and take on the form of a servant. Jesus wasn't a wimp. He was Lord. He is Lord. He is God, yet he took on the form of a servant. Because he didn't have to try to prove who he was. He knew who he was. Denise and I, years ago when we were first married, we got a little plaque and it says this home is where each live for the other and both live for God where each lives for the other and both live for God you know last week we said that our example in marriage is Jesus Christ he's our example we can't look to others and all of that you know there's some aspect we can but ultimately we really need to look to Jesus and guys I'm not trying to be religious I'm being real and Jesus is real he knows us where we are we don't have to become something for him to be willing to work in our life and help us you know if you ask God if you ask God help me God doesn't say well what did you make on the last exam God doesn't say If you become good enough, I'll help you. No, if you ask him, he responds. He acts in love, all right? Jesus willingly took upon himself the position of a servant in order that he might serve and save us. 
No one, now listen to this, no one forced Jesus to do this. Even on the cross, he said, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. He, he didn't have to die, and he could have come off of the cross. And they kept, you know, the mockers, when he was on the cross, they said, if you're the son of God, then why don't you come off the cross? If you're the son of God, why doesn't God, your father, come down and save you? Well, Jesus could, with one word, have slain them. God could have sent fire out of heaven like he did with Elijah the prophet. But you know what? God the Father and God the Son chose to willingly lay lay himself down, give his life so that he might win his bride. No one forced him to do this. And neither can we try to force another human being to submit to our will. It is wrong to manipulate. It is wrong to connive. It is wrong to twist things and circumstances and uh, whatever your words and do whatever you can to try to get the other person to submit to what you want. Even if you do it by trying to act humble and and like you're such a servant. If your end motive is to get them to do what you want, it is wrong. It is manipulation. And it is trying to force someone to do something that is not their will. And God hates that. God will not do it and he won't allow us to do it. Jesus did what he did in laying his life down and becoming a servant as an act of his own will because he loved this. And that is our example for both husbands and wives. And like I said, to do this, for us to do this, for you and I to, if I'm going to serve Denise and willingly submit myself and not try to prove my manhood, and try to prove, well, I'm, I, I'm the one that's in charge. If I willingly submit to serve her, and, and uh, uh, she wanted a fan this morning. She was putting her makeup on, and I had the air conditioner going on 67, and the, and the f- ceiling fan is blowing. And she looked at me, she said, look at my face. The makeup's running off. <laughs> I don't know where it's running off to, but it's running off. So I ran off. I did like the makeup. I ran off. But I ran to the storage room. She didn't know it. I went to the storage room and I was trying to get a fan out there, a little fan to set on the... the, And I thought, you know, I want to do this to help her. Now, I wasn't able to get it done in time because it was all under all this stuff and everything. But I will get it. You know, what's wrong with serving one another? It's the example that Jesus gave us. Now, listen to this. Two needy, insecure people searching for significance through the other person, codependence. Let me say it again. Two needy, insecure people searching for significance through the other person is like combining two vacuums to each other. You get a marriage that really sucks. You get the point? And that is the truth. It is the truth. Now let's deal with, I said we're going to deal with the source of our problems. And this is it. 
the source of our problems is our main flaw is self-centeredness. Your self-centeredness, your mate's self-centeredness is really the core issue. It's not adultery. It's not uh, interest in another human being, someone you're not married to. It's not that they run the credit card up and you can't get them to stop spending. It's not that they're drinking too much. It's not. All of those things are surface issues. At the heart of the issue is self-centeredness. Selfishness. At the heart of adultery, a heart of abuse, at the heart of, of emotional coldness where I treat the other person and I, I, I really don't even treat them. I, I just ignore them. Uh, all, any form of abuse or unfaithfulness, a violation of, of what a relationship should be, at the very heart of any circumstance that you want to bring to the table, the root of it, if you... Take that circumstance and could run it back to its root. Every one, every one of them, no matter how many hundreds or thousands they are, they all run back to this one single root. Self-centeredness. Every relationship confronts self-centeredness. It confronts this barrier. And no relationship can ever proceed beyond it. Because self-centeredness becomes the wall that I build. It's like the Great Wall of China. And we all have somewhat of a wall. You do. Every one of us have a wall there. Now, that wall can be just so small, anybody can step over it and come right in. That wall can be to where that only a chosen few have access. That wall can be, though, where no one has access, not even your closest loved one. The Great Wall of China was built for two purposes, to keep everything else out and China in. And when you build walls because of insecurities, because of hurts, pains, things that have happened in the past, and it's all because of self-centeredness, not because of the circumstance. When we build a wall, what we do is we lock others out and we lock ourselves in. And when we do that, we, are in, we can become literally incapable of actually giving ourselves to someone. And here's what we have to do. We send emissaries representatives out to deal with our husband, our wife, our family, our friends. No one ever deals with the real me. They deal with a representation I send out there. And here's the thing. People that do that, unless they get so far into it, it becomes psychotic you know, or it becomes you know, a psychosis thing. People that do that, in their heart of hearts, they realize it. They know, I never really give my real self. It's hidden away in here. Let's deal with that. Let's look at it. We do it because we think it protects me. It protects me what? From loss and from pain. 
Because those are the two great things. Now listen. Now listen. Here, I'm going to help you out. In life, all of human beings are always running from and towards. Okay? We're always moving from pain and we're always looking for pleasure. Now when I say pleasure, don't think sexual. I'm talking about pleasure, contentment, uh, peace, whatever we may call pleasure. Okay? Uh, Whatever. In our life, we're always trying to move from our pain and move to what we call pleasure. And in doing that, if we don't gain a good understanding of ourselves and what is the root of the issue, that the root of my issue is self-centeredness. If I don't understand this, what I will do is I will build walls to protect my from pain and I will be on an endless search for pleasure. Now, Dana Adam Shapiro, you probably don't know him, but He's a movie producer in Hollywood. And uh, he wanted to do a movie to prove that uh, uh, marriage, the uh, idea of marriage, that it was a vanishing concept and that it was no longer uh, viable in the society of today. I forget exactly when he made the movie, but it was a few years ago. So he did a lot of research on on his movie. The name of the movie is Monogamy. And the movie, the purpose of the movie is to prove beyond any question that marriage is archaic. The concept is, is a dead concept and it has no place in the society of today. So what he did is he interviewed Dozens and dozens and dozens of divorced couples from all over. He went on a, uh, it was almost like a documentary research that he was doing, though it was a movie he was making. And in his interview with all of these divorced couples, it was amazing. And he writes this, that he found one common issue. He found one issue, and this is his Statement, not mine. He found, he said, I found one issue that was common in every situation, in every divorce. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Well, I read all of his stuff and really at the end of it, I wasn't convinced marriage was archaic. I was convinced our concept of it is all wrong. We think marriage is about me. And because of that, we have trouble with it. And it's really about us. Here's what the scenarios went in his uh, interview, or in his, uh, all his interviews. Just to boil them down. They went something like this. One partner acts out of selfish. Maybe uh, they were unfaithful an affair or they were very abusive or they went out and blew all the money or whatever the case may be, you know, whatever it is or whatever act happened. One partner acted out of selfishness, me. The other reacts in turn, becomes a tennis match. 
one partner acts out of selfishness, so the other one says, okay, I will too. And this begins to continue going on back and forth until they literally destroy the marriage. The amazing thing in all of his interviews, the people actually loved each other in the beginning. Fell in love so to such a degree, this is the person I want to spend my life with. Not one of them said, I want to be married for a year. They, not one of them said, is this the person I want to divorce in two years? Every one of them, I want to spend my life with you. But because of one acting in selfishness, the other one did, and it destroyed the marriage. Self-centeredness is the root that must be dealt with in any relationship for it to survive. To the degree that self-centeredness is allowed to remain in a marriage, to that same degree, that marriage will suffer and will cause suffering. Now, that begs the question, why are we so blind to our own selfish attitude? Why are we so blind? What is it that we don't want to deal with it? The reason is the wounds we carry through life. We are wounded people. Every one of us have been wounded. Every one of us carry wounds. Wounds from parents. Wounds from relatives. Wounds from friends. Girlfriends, boyfriends. Wounds from former spouses. We carry wounds. Some of those wounds are from physical or sexual abuse. I cannot tell you the stories as a pastor for more than, for 34 years of pastoring. I could not even begin to tell you the stories that I heard. That as I sat and listened to them, I could not help but weep. I could not keep from weeping. They literally broke my heart that a parent, an uncle, an aunt, a trusted adult, a teacher would do to a child what was done. And as Denise and I would sit and this young lady or young guy, or sometimes they're in their 40s or 50s, Pouring their heart out of something that happened when they were four, five, six, seven. Some of them, they, it had lasted until they finally escaped home. And you listen to them and you think, how in the world do you carry, drag that through life? Because of that, we wind up having to build all of this thing because I'm going to protect myself Because I'm the only one that will look out for me. I remember we were dealing with a young lady in her 30s that had such issues in relationships. She was destructive. She would destroy every relationship once it got to a certain point. And the issue that came out was her being molested from a little girl 
by her dad having intercourse with her, all, I'm talking about when she's in elementary school, all the way through, up through high school. And she escaped to get away. And then she, and the stories she told were unbelievable. And see, here a man, her father, a figure who of anybody should lay their life down, began to use this for his own self-centered gratification. Well, he acts in selfishness, totally uncaring. See, here's the thing. When you become totally self-centered, you have no ability to understand what you're doing to gratify yourself, how it affects others. I sat there and I thought, how in the world could a father? And then I went to, where can I find a gun? But what happened, see, he poisoned her. He twisted her. And there's a special place in hell for people like that. I'll say it like I mean it. He did that to her. But see, the problem is, she's not just someone that's had sexual abuse. She now is someone that she's got to live out of that same poison that was put into her. She's got to live very self-centered. Because as far as she concerned, she went to her mother, told her mother about it. And her mother said, you're a stupid, rebellious, unkind child. You've got a wonderful father. You ever say that to me or anybody else, I will beat the life out of you. And so she couldn't tell her mother. So what, who is her only hope? Herself. Well, can you imagine what relationships were like for her? She could only have a short-term relationship because as soon as someone got a little close, her guard, they touched all of a sudden the wall that she had built and they could come no further. And she sat in her office and bawled and bawled and bawled. And I'm telling you what it was like. She would, it was like a, uh, she was going through a phases of just getting all of this out. And that's horrible. But let me give us something else. The more prevalent wounds are from cold, indifferent parents and spouses. Someone that's very cold, indifferent. A parent that acts cold and indifferent is a parent that is very self-centered. A spouse that acts very cold and indifferent, they're very self-centered. And this is a cruelty that wounds and impairs the internal psyche of the individual it's put upon, especially a child. And so they carry this woundedness with them into every relationship they have. Then, when the inevitable conflicts arise, and my friend, you cannot have a relationship that does not confront conflict. When the inevitable conflicts arise, our old memories that are still fresh within us, they arise from within our wounded heart and they on purpose sabotage the relationship to protect us from further harm. Our defenses kick in and self-centeredness 
stands up and says, I am in charge now. You will not hurt me. Now, I want to deal with some things here. Self-centered people find a home with enablers. Let's define enabling. Enabling is defined, now listen to this very carefully, as removing the natural consequences to another person's behavior. A single mother, I love single mothers, but a single mother that the child can never do wrong. It's the teacher, it's the coach, it's that friend, it's that girlfriend, it's that boyfriend, it's your husband, it's your wife. When a parent acts like that, they are, in, they are an enabler and they are never letting that child deal with the natural consequences of actions. Sir Isaac Newton said, for every action, there's an opposite but equal reaction. You throw the ball against the wall, it's going to come back to you. We act a certain way, there are certain consequences. But when people deflect them from us, they're enabling us to continue to develop and grow in self-centeredness. Now listen, responsibility for my actions. If I lie to my mate, when I do something, if I slap her or she does something or if you hit somebody, there is a natural consequence, a natural order that is in life. It's in the human uh, order, society. God made it that way. It's a protection thing so that when people act wrong, society reacts. And a child learns then You don't just go up and slap somebody because you felt like it. You don't walk over to another kid's things and take it because you want it. There's a reaction. There is a consequence. And those things have to be learned. We're not born with them. We learn them by living in a society where that there are consequences to all of our actions. There's reward for right action. There's consequences for bad actions. Are you with me? Now, an enabler, what they do is they make sure that a person never has to deal with those consequences. Okay. An enabler seldom, if ever, confronts the selfishness in their partner. The enabler ensures the self-centered partner is content and happy in order to maintain at least a semblance of a relationship. An enabler is willing to settle for a burned over piece of ground that doesn't even look like a relationship. They're willing to settle for that just to say they have a relationship. Now listen, enablers tend to be codependent. What does codependency mean? It means that the other person determines how I feel about myself. If they respond good if they love me in return if they do all this it makes me feel good if they don't I feel lacking enablers tend to be codependent 
feel compelled to protect their partner and solve all of their problems for them. Parents, you are not to solve all the problems for your children. Now, there's a difference between a three-year-old and a 13-year-old. You with me? A two-year-old and a 12-year-old. A two-year-old, yes. But even then, there's some things they're having to learn, correct? When enabler, when we begin to enable, we skew the relationship. Now, listen to this, and let's just check and see where we are. Here is what an enabler self-centered relationship looks like. The enabling partner overfunctions. And the self-centered partner underfunctions. Now, relationships are like this. There's ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys. They're, they're usually not exactly like this. There's maybe moments, but we're like this, okay? And we go through this, and that's why marriage is kind of like a dance, all right? It's a dance where the two are responding to each other. The woman responds to the man. The man responds to the woman. And there is that, okay? It's a dance. It's never just all straight and steady. But in an enabling or in a, an enabling um, uh, self-centered or codependent relationship, what you have is one is over-functioning and the other under-functions. And so look at the gap. You have a gap that's right here. And here's what happens over time. It keeps on. Because enabling only causes the self-centered person to get further into self-centeredness. And the further they go into self, become trapped and held by their own self-centeredness, the more the enabler has to enable if they're going to have a relationship. And so it creates this humongous gap between the two. And what happens then is underlying resentments begin to rise up on both parties. The enabler deep inside resents the self-centered individual and the self-centered individual resents the enabler. But also, the bad thing is, the children that are raised in that, they resent things. They resent the enabling parent, and they resent the self-centered parent. And then they go out into life with a skewed view of what marriage should be. And the, the sad thing is, people in those relationships have lost sight of what a healthy relationship is. They're like ships in the middle of the ocean that cannot find the shore, and they have no rudder. Now let's close, wrap this up with how we confront our self-centeredness. How do I confront my self-centeredness? Now listen, you can tell someone about it, you know, as a mate, if they're acting selfish, you ought to say, that was very selfish. That's very self-centered. Um, let me, and here's another thing. Self-centered people always 
make everything about them. Denise's father, her natural father, who did not raise them, but anytime anything happened, his own daughter died. His own daughter died, and his immediate response was about himself and how, and he made it about him for the, everybody to feel sorry for him and to think about him. He wanted attention on him. There are people, that's self-centered people, everything in life becomes about them. And if we're married to one of those individuals, we need to be honest, not cruel, but honest and, and say, in a situation like that, say, this is not about you. This is not about you. Denise and I were in a situation doing something and something happened and I absolutely responded about me. And it wasn't about me. But for whatever reason, I did. And Denise looked at me and very sternly said, Steve, this is not about you right now. And it slapped me in the face and I thought, oh God, forgive me. And immediately I changed. See, we all have some self-centeredness and without knowing it, we can do that. But in a healthy relationship, we're willing and we have the freedom to say that to our mate. All right? We each are self-centered to some degree. Now listen to this. The wounds we have received in life do not create our self-centeredness. They only aggravate it. It's there already. If we're selfish, it's because we choose to be that way. We choose to let our wounds and hurts control our life. We choose to protect us above all. There are some resources. Now, I want to say that because uh, there's so much I'd like to share. But if you go on our website, ChristianLifeChurch.com and go to Fixing Us, you will see, find resources there and we're uploading more. There's links to some things. Some of this information I got from uh, Dr. Phil, his site and some things he had on, on uh, uh, enabling and self-centered relationships and things like that. There's also some questionnaires. There's some great questionnaires on there that you can take individually to find out how self-centered you are. I challenge you to be brave and courageous enough to do that. Also, you can take one to see if you are an enabler. This is not for your mate to take for you. It's for you to take. And then also there's one that a couple can do together to see how much they really know and care about it. Or not how much they know about each other. Which is really a, a cool thing to do. All right. Now let me give you two practical antidotes for self-centeredness. Two practical antidotes. They're real simple. Number one is self-denial. Self-denial. Now, self-denial is not something I feel, it's something I do. I want, if you, here's what every one of us must do. People that don't act self-centered, it's because they practice certain things that keep them from living out of their self-centeredness. Because every one of us have it in us. How do you do, and if you say, I want to learn how to do that, how to live self-denial because we'll tend to think self-denial means well what about me what about me and see that's that old fears well you remember last week I told you that marriage is really the greenhouse 
for the best you. When you learn to give of yourself instead of what you can get, all of a sudden you receive more. To practice self-denial, find some practical ways that you can practice denying yourself. Such as, you see somebody, you see a, a lady in line at the grocery store or, or someone in line and you've got, uh, you're behind her or in front of her and you've got three items and she's got a buggy full, you know? Just, to, I mean, you got a, I'm sorry, you got a buggy full and she's got three items, you know, or he has. Say, hey, listen, you go ahead of me. You say, well, that doesn't matter. It helps. Every time you put yourself behind someone else, it does something to self-centeredness. It begins to push it down. God made us to wear that we have it, but it shouldn't control us. All right? Uh, remember this. What you feed grows, what you starve dies. If you feed self-centeredness, if it's all about you, and listen to yourself, how much of your thoughts, feelings are all about you? If they're all about you, you're, you're, you are out of touch with the rest of the world. You can't always live in a f- realm where all your feelings are about you. If you do, there's something wrong. You're overly self-centered. You ought to be able to feel for others. And not just those. Now listen, you say, well, I feel for my kids. Yeah, and a lot of times that's so they'll be what you want them to be. So begin to starve self-centeredness. Deny it. You know what the second one is? Generosity. It's very similar to the first one. Develop generosity in your life. Isn't it something that a part of church life, a part of being a part of a church, a Christian, is tithing? Taking a portion of the money we give our time for, we work for, that's going to provide a nice life for us. We take some of it and we give it to God. Why do you think God does that? Do you think God in heaven needs us to give some money so that the light bill in heaven is paid? No. It's really not about the place we're giving to. It's about the fact of what it does in me. When I give out for money, money is me in foldable form. It's my life that I gave for it, my time, my energy, my abilities. When I give it, not just to a church, but to a charity or to, to a family that has suffered something, you know, a family, they, their home burns down and you go buy something for them to replace in their home when you need it yourself or you want it, you go and do that for them. There's something great happens within us. I'll tell you what, there's some great charities. like The Montgomery Food Bank. They are a phenomenal group of people. And they feed so many hungry, homeless people here in Montgomery. I tell you, give to them. Start giving them to them. Giving to them. Go down there and volunteer. Volunteer your time in kid life. We need workers in, in the children's area, in the nursery. I don't want to work in the nursery. You're the very one needs to. Volunteer. Give of yourself. You don't do it because you want to. You do it because you need to. I need to do this. Uh, Common Ground. Great ministry. Get involved at them. Uh, Echo. 
a, a group right here, Aida Harris right here in the church, that her after school program for, for children. There's so many things you can get involved in. Go down and volunteer for Habitat for Humanity or do some things that, you know, where you give of yourself, take out of your time and do something good. It will help free you from self-centeredness. In Genesis 4, God's Cain was filled with self-pity and jealousy. And God said this to him, Cain, sin is at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Every one of us have self-centeredness. And it is the root of every problem in marriage. And if you will learn, if you will master your own selfishness, if you will master it, you're well on your way to solving all the marriage issues. Listen to this poem by William Blake, a poet. And in Songs of Experience, he contrasts two ways we can love. Listen to this. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care. But for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight. Joys in another's loss of ease and builds a hell in heaven's despite. The only place that God said you could have heaven on earth was in the home. But I guarantee you, where there's potential for great wonder, there's potential for great horror. And I would say the starting place, the best starting place for getting your marriage on track and conquering your own issues in your life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you invite Jesus, if you let him come into your life and just surrender your life to him, he will begin to correct and help. He'll be right there with you to help you with every one of these issues. Jesus, listen to his invitation. He said, behold, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. If you will hear me and open the door, I'll come in. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information, visit ChristianLifeChurch.com.